Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Claire Madeline Culkin. Today, we will be discussing The Compulsion to Create, Women Writers and Their Demon Lovers, published in 2013 by ORI Academic Press, with the prolific writer and thinker Dr. Susan Cavalier-Adler. Dr. Cavalier-Adler is a clinical psychologist in private practice for over 40 years, who holds a PhD in clinical psychology from Adelphi University's Gordon Derner Institute, as well as the founder of the State Chartered Object Relations Institute for Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis, where she has served as executive director since 1991. She is an ABPP fellow and diplomat of the American Academy and Board of Psychoanalysis and has been recognized by the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. Dr. Cavalier-Adler has received 15 awards for her writing, including the Gradiva Award for her work, Morning Spirituality and Psychic Change, a New Object Relations Review of Psychoanalysis, published by Rutledge in 2003. The book we will be discussing today earned our guest an honorary doctorate of literature from Ignatius University for her contribution to the study of women writers. Dr. Cavalier-Adler calls into question the myth that one must be crazy to be creative, and raises, raises concern about its implication that therapeutic intervention is a deterrent to creative growth. I'm so grateful to be able to explore this topic in depth with Dr. Cavalier-Adler. Let's now welcome her to the discussion. Welcome, Dr. Susan Cavalier-Adler. Thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books Network. How are you doing? Oh, it's a pleasure to join you. Um, I'm doing fine, and I always love talking about my books and my work. I am especially excited about um, this work, The Compulsion to Create Women Writers and Their Demon Lovers. Um, As I mentioned, I had the opportunity to read part of this while I was in London. Um, And in in the end of the book, there's um, a section that is included in the newer edition of the book on Virginia Woolf. Um, And so this time more than ever, I felt, as I always do reading your work, um, a sort of deep kind of personal engagement um, in in your writing. Um, I feel it kind of working on an unconscious level, which I think is so appropriate to this particular work, which explores the relationship between um, unconscious object relations and the creative process. I just want to draw attention for listeners to the new image that's presented on the on the cover of the book. Do you want to describe that? I know that that's um, a very important image to you. Oh, yes, yes. I love the new publication, which has such vivid illustrations, and the one on the cover it's um, it has pictures in red on a dark background, uh, red on black um, of the demon lovers. Basically, the woman being writing with her demon lover with horns right behind her. So unconsciously, or even consciously, as she writes about her demon lover there in her work, um, the muse always turning into 
this eroticized bad object demon lover that she gets highly attached to um, because of early um, early um, developmental attachments and um, how they get played out in her mind as she actually is in the creative process. And the book does focus on women writers, as does my book, The Creative Mystique, on all women writers and artists. But a lot of the things I say would actually apply to men, but not about the muse. The woman has a muse that turns demonic, whereas many male writers have this muse that keeps inspiring them. And um, so in that way, it's different. So I focused on women artists for a reason because they hadn't been written about enough, and in this book, particularly on women writers. But also, there's a whole dynamic with the demon lover complex that and the muse turning into a demon that's there in women in a different way than men, although you, some of the issues developmentally are overlapping with men and women. So um, my question to that point, to the distinction um, between the way that the muse functions in um, the psyche of a, of a male as opposed to the psyche of a female, I think can be clarified when you um, get into some of the 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 um, contributions that you made that you've made to theory, importantly, um, the developmental role that mourning plays. Um, but before we get into that, I'm wondering if you could talk about your your personal motivation to begin this work. I know that this is an important work to you. It was um, correct me if I'm wrong. This was your first book, and you did receive an honorary PhD for for your contribution to an analysis of um, a psychobiographical analysis of literature. Um, so can you speak a little bit about what you entered into the book thinking about and how that might have changed over the course of you researching the work? Okay, yes. I've published five books as well as over 70 articles, and this was the first book that was originally published by Rutledge in 1993 and had uh, also a demon lover on the cover but a different illustration. It's now been republished um, well, actually republished twice, but the most recent one is with ORI Academic Press in 2013. So the book from 1993 is now 2013 with some additions, as you mentioned, like the Virginia Woolf section, which relates to a longer study of Virginia Woolf and the Creative Mystique, which came after it in 96 with with um, Rutledge and has been also republished in 2014 by ORI Academic Press. So, yes, it was my first book, and it was it came out of my own passion and gratitude for the creative process, um, feeling the, the creative process was so important to me and helped me psychologically survive and develop so much. So I wanted to look at how women who use the creative process and and in this book particularly writers were able to mourn and self-integrate and develop or not how much could it be a healing process and I ended up finding out that there were two developmental levels that affected this and when I write about the compulsion to create I'm writing about what I found, um, not anticipating this, but found as I studied women who I, who had um, particularly powerful 
father male attachments that they dominated their work that was one way I chose the women in this book and had these unique male muse figure that really hasn't been talked about very much I I discovered that there were so many of the women and in this book all the women except for Charlotte Bronte who said a higher level were pre-edibly arrested and they and they therefore they couldn't mourn and integrate in their creative work. Instead, they tended to repeat primal early trauma in the second, like around the second year of life in the critical separation individuation phases, where character disorders form when the mother cannot sustain contact as the child becomes more autonomous and separate from her. And so there's a, instead of a, um, a separation from the mother, there's a trauma of abandonment and fears of self-annihilation. And the person has to defend with certain whole character disorder. And they repeat the trauma. And they tend to act it out in their life. But they also, when they're artists, they act it out in their work. And so... In, Emily Bronte, in contrast to her sister Charlotte Bronte, and I'll get into the developmental issues a little later, but she um, had this trauma repeated over and over in her poetry and her novel. And the other authors that I refer to who have big studies of Emily Dickinson and um, Edith Sitwell, the British um, performance poet, Edith Sitwell, plus Sylvia Plath and Anais Ninner in this book, but the um, Emily Dickinson, Emily Bronte, and Edith Sitwell are the largest studies that show this compulsion to create where the woman tries to live in their internal world with their creative process because their outer relationships are breaking down or don't develop well. And, but in writing the book, I must say, also was counteracting and deconstructing two very common shibboleths or kind of mythic beliefs um, that have surrounded the world of creativity and artists and writers. And that is that there's this mistaken belief that you have to be crazy to be creative and that if you get healed through treatment, through a psychotherapeutic treatment, that you're going to lose your creativity. Now, that certainly is not true in an object relations approach to psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. There's actually the development of all creative potentials. And moving from the compulsion to create where someone's repeating a trauma and living in their internal world to a freer flow of creative, free creative motivation where there's also motivation to connect externally and go back and forth between the internal world connection for creative desire and self-expression and the external relationships for interpersonal intimacy and love. Um, there, there should be a free flow back and forth. But And I speak about that theory of psychic health in my other book on creative women artists, The Creative Mystique from Red Shoes Frenzy to Love and Creativity. Because you see, the compulsion to create is one side of the breakdown of um, that free flow of organic connection from the self to others outside and from the internal world to others outside. 
Um, that's one side. The other side would be a love addict who clings and doesn't have any sense of their creative resources. Um, and really can't love, but clings to people. And that, that is also a sign of the pre-edipal arrest with the lack of mother sustaining connection long enough through separation individuation to be internalized and provide a internal holding or containing environment, um, which also is necessary for someone to process loss and process mourning. Mm-hmm. So when there's primal abandonment, trauma, and loss without the capacity to mourn, the person ends up just repeating the trauma, which you see in the work of these women writers who've been developmentally arrested. But this can be healed through treatment it, when it can't be healed through a mourning process in the work. Um, so what I discovered is that someone like Charlotte Bronte or Suzanne Farrell in the creative mystique are at the edible level and who had had enough of the mother uh, sustaining connection and good enough contact through separation individuation, they were able to actually mourn and mourn later Oedipal level losses and move on with their life and develop their creativity more in the world, whereas the others would have needed treatment um, in order to be able to get to a capacity to mourn, to, in order to deal with the addiction to this bad eroticized object that be, turns the muse into the demon lover, they would have had to open up psychic space for new, healthier internalizations with the therapist and especially one attuned to object relations and development. So um, these women didn't get the treatment, so they repeat the, the trauma in their work over and over. Now, if they had gotten treatment, they may have had a whole new development in their creativity. So it, it certainly is not true that creativity is aborted by treatment. On the contrary, it can be enlarged and developed, may be refined and may be, become different, because, but it would it would be able to grow and free creative motivation can develop. So I counteract in my descriptions of these women the idea that you have to be crazy to be creative, even though these women were brilliant women artists who were um, had severe pathological issues from this developmental rest, but they would have been creative beings in any case, I believe, just like Charlotte Bronte was, who reached the higher level. Um, but because they had that arrest, they wrote about, with incredible intensity, this craving for connection and constant disappointment and abandonment and betrayal in connection, which goes back to the original trauma with the mother, compounded by things with father and later others that re-traumatized. Um, so this is all actually seen in their work and in in someone like Emily Dickinson or Emily Bronte who had that early trauma but with, they were they had more schizoid defenses they withdrew from the world and tried to actually live in their creative process so you see all this in their, their work um, when someone like um, um Others that I've written about here, well, here are Sylvia Plath and in the other book, um, Anne Sexton and Diane Arbus, they were more borderline. They ended up suiciding. So, and Edith Sitwell, who was narcissistic in psychic structure, ended up um, 
at the end of her life when she could no longer get this act of applause from the audience, she ended up dis, um, declining, becoming alcoholic, and losing her creative capacities. So there are diminishing returns for the creative abilities when the person doesn't get treatment and has that pre-edible primal arrest. But for someone like Charlotte Bronte, they can actually heal themselves through the creative process, which is what I was looking originally at. I love the creative process, (laughs) and I wanted to see how it could be psychologically healing. And I, I was not focusing on the aesthetic quality. All these women were brilliant artists. Right. And whatever their developmental level... But I was commenting on their psychological capacities and how, to what degree, they could or could not use the creative process to mourn the earliest losses they had and and whether they could, through mourning, self-integrate and go through separation and individuation to become more and more um, an independent healthy person with free or creative motivation and the capacity to love and have intimacy as well. Right. What I, what I'm noticing, um, as well, what I noticed consistently, um, throughout the book and what I'm noticing in this conversation is the way in which you're regarding, um, you're, you're giving attention, not just to the object relations, um, in, in, uh, in the writer as subject based on, their um, the biographical context of their life, but also regarding the work as a representation and manifestation of those object relations as well. And what I notice you saying here is that the commonality in a successful creative life as well as in a successful lived experience with real relationships in the world is the capacity to mourn. And I think um, I just like to highlight that idea a little bit because you've done such great work in um, positioning mourning as a meaningful developmental process. Um, can you speak a little bit to to that idea? Can you situate um, your contribution? to uh, theory um, with developmental mourning and its relationship to creative reparation. Yes. Um, developmental mourning is one of my theoretical contributions to um, psychoanalysis and object relations thinking. And um, it, it is an extension and, and further elaboration of a certain... Um, human capacity to mourn loss and open up through that a capacity to love and create. But I go back, and when I say also it is an extension of earlier theory, um, in Freud in 1970 he had mourning and melancholia, so he did look at mourning as a human capacity, and but he didn't see how he was seeing how it got blocked in the mel- melancholic and versus somebody who could mourn. He did not yet see how mourning was a critical and developmental and clinical process. This came about with Melanie Klein, who wrote her, uh, her paper in 
1940, it was published on mourning and its relation to manic depressive states, where she actually used herself as Mrs. A in the mourning of her son and showed the actual subjective experience of mourning. And that was the first statement that mourning is a critical developmental and clinical process. And um, she also did something in that paper going beyond Freud. And I must cite, you know, giving Freud credit. I'm sh- she may not have ever written her paper. Freud didn't write his. So we all build on our predecessors. Um, she wrote Morning in Manic Depressive States, believing she was a Freudian at the time. And she, um, so she extended a whole clinical range of looking at mourning. But she also... Um, showed in that paper how aggression could be is part of the mourning process or can be when it is brought to a symbolic level. She herself as Mrs. A was able to have symbolic level fantasies of aggression and destruction or competition with the lost loved one And she was able, because she could have dream images and fantasies in symbolic form, she had an internal container to express the aggression and then move on to surrendering to the grief affects that we think of as the essence of mourning. Um, When you feel grief about a specific loss and you feel that whole range of sadness from pain sadness to ultimately love sadness, which is milder and healing and opens up love and creativity through the mourning process. So she was a living example for herself of this. And my theory of developmental mourning builds on that incline, but really integrates so much of British and American object relations theory in terms of how mourning is a is an overall healing process. And um, in my another book of my Morning Spirituality and Psychic Change, A New Object Relations View of Psychoanalysis, which came out with Rutledge in, in 2003. It also got the uh, Gradiva Award from NAP in 2004. But there I had in-depth cases of patients in treatment with mourning, and then also in The Anatomy of Regret, which is a Karnak book in 2013. And um, in in The Morning Spirituality and Psychic Change, the first half is theory, and I talk about uh, how mourning is explicit and implicit in all the theories from Freud through the British theorists. So then I integrate so many of the main, Melly Klein, of course, Winnicott, of course, Fairburn, uh, Michael Bellant, um, many theories, including James Masterson, uh, who talks about abandonment, tr- depression, mourning, and character disorders with pre-edible arrest in the American scene. I integrate those in as I spell out how my patients mourn. I show all these concepts being part of developmental mourning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in both the compulsion to create here that we're speaking about today and in Morning spirituality and psychic change, there are specific chapters on developmental mourning explaining it theoretically, and then you can see it in the through the voice of the patient in the cases that I have in depth studies of. Mm-hmm. Just to relate this back to um, the creative process, which is so um, integral to uh, this book, The Compulsion to Create, I just want to highlight 
um, something that uh, you state in in your own words in this um, book um, addressing the thesis. You write, the extent to which the use of the creative process is reparative along the lines of self-differentiation and self-integration as seen within the context of Melanie Klein's two major self-states, the paranoid schizoid position and the depressive position. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a move towards the depressive position that allows for the morning? Yes, absolutely. Um, Often the um, aggression is more, it's more enacted in the paranoid schizoid position in the depressive position, it's contained and symbolized, and one also reaches capacity for guilt and gr- guilt and grief, affects and loss. So it's existential grief, um, not the more defensive, spurious guilt that Ronald Fairburn describes. In that, but it's it's actual existential grief where there's a profound sense of. Loss and regret, um, I, I, that's why I had a whole book on anatomy of regret, but um, it is the depressive position of Klein is also part and parcel of all my thinking, and it's uh, it's where you can process what's inside of you. You're not just throwing it out or favor and talked about exercising it. Klein talks about the paranoid schizoid where you're, you experience everything as persecutory, from without, um, but or you externalize always what's in the inner world, whereas in the depressive position you contain what's in the inner world and you can tolerate the affects enough to focus in, inward on yourself and, of course, in there is yourself in relation to early others and new internalizations with others, but it's a capacity to re- have self-reflection and all the ego functions actually develop through adequate separation individuation. And when that hasn't been adequate, you have to have a mourning process of that primal loss um, to get to the organic development of ego functions, which includes self-reflection um, and object constancy and... Uh, and um, um, interiority, where you're aware of your having an inside and interior world and uh, feelings and thoughts being feelings and thoughts, um, not just enacted visceral things in your body and mind. So there's a whole range of ego development that comes with mourning. And you can actually see it happening when somebody's mourning in their writing as a creative artist. Um, And in the work of Charlotte Bronte, who's at the higher level, you actually see her mourning process in her narrator, um, in her her last and most eloquent psychological book, Villette, which came after the more popular Jane Eyre. You have character development, character-driven plot rather than the the, the, plot. plot-driven, it's more character-driven in its evolution. And that's because the characters can actually grow. As she, the, the author, mourns, and she was mourning her siblings going back to an early loss of her mother, and she was, um, her character was mourning. So you have specific descriptions of that in her narrator, Lucy Snow, who's actually self-reflective, very different than Emily Bronte in... Weathering Heights, where um, there's just 
reactivity in the um, in her her ego alter ego character Catherine, who's like a devalued feminine, with the male Heathcliff being another part of her, and they're just enacting this masculine feminine side of her without an integrated whole woman. Um, and I think there's these you can see there the um, the lack of ego development, whereas in Charlotte Brando you see it, not only the ego development that allows self-reflection narrator, but you see um, it all of that developing as the character grows and the author mourns herself. So it is very critical that she was able to mourn in her creative process. She was able to mourn higher level loss at the Oedipal level, Oedipal disillusionment, the father, because she had a good enough mother inside. She didn't have to mourn the primal loss that much, although there is some of that, but it's at a symbolic level. It's not just acted out. It's actually mourned. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, um, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I'm wondering if you could... um, in defining the demon lover complex, um, which I think the compulsion to create kind of comes out of and which um, I believe Emily Bronte of the Bronte sisters is um, is an example of. I'm wondering if you could explain why why is it that female writers provide such uh, a special case and a window into um, the arrest that you see in the paranoid schizoid position um, and then um, the movement towards the symbolic and the depressive position. What What's so special about the case of the woman writer mm-hmm. with respect to that? Okay, I do want to describe that, and I might mention that Martin Bergman in his um, writing of Forward for the Creative Mystique, Mystique particularly said that one of the most original parts of these books is the male muse, the whole, that hadn't been written about in this way before. Um, But I also want to say the developmental distinction between Charlotte Bronte and Emily Bronte and where that came from. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Of course, yeah. Yeah, because even though I was referring to one being higher level than the other, I didn't say specifically why you see that in their development. And it's very interesting because they were both sisters. It's a great example of this developmental contrast because they were both had the same mother and father yet Charlotte Bronte was five years old when her mother died of cancer and Emily Bronte was two when the mother got ill and and just verging on three when the mother died which is the critical separation individuation period so Charlotte Bronte was at the higher Oedipal level where she had already internalized enough of the mother who was sustained good enough contact through separation individuation and her um, father then became the focus as it does in the Oedipal stage for a female child and the father then became the object of so much of her writing through other male characters in terms of resolving disillusionment and also with a somewhat narcissistic father figure but she had enough to do the morning in her work because the mother had been with her and got internalized and also developed through separation individuation the ego functions to allow it to reflect and feel and contain affects for the morning process. Whereas her sister, Emily Bronte, disrupted by the mother's illness and death when she was in the critical separation individuation period, 
could not mourn in her work and was arrested in pathological mourning, which in object relations terms is a, is a demon lover complex because at least for the woman she gets attached to the eroticized bad object. Now this would be true for a man too who's disrupted. He could have that disruption, the eroticized uh, attachment to an eroticized bad mother with a pre-edible disruption in mothering and tra- at a traumatic level. However, it's interesting in the creative work how this comes out in this theme of the male muse turning into the demon for women artists and writers. Um, and Emily Bronte had it in the, her images of forces of nature, the night whim, the guy, the god muse figure coming towards her where she's yearning to merge with him and ends up being possessed, abandoned, and then ends up with her her dying. And there's an image of a tombstone at the end of a poem. And, and her, the woman's voice, the creative poet, she loses her voice in the man, in the male part of her coming at her and taking over. Um, so that male muse turning to the demon is very, very unique in the writing of women because in the men they tend to have uh, female muses who stay with them Hmm. and I've also done some of this writing in terms of women with women like it can be so in lesbian relationships with the muse demon I mean it doesn't have to be you know just the distinct genders but the main thing is the psychological dynamics of it that get played out from the developmental levels Right, is, right. Does that answer the question you were asking, or do I need to? Elaborate? No, no. I think I think it definitely does. Um, I think it definitely does. Although I do, I do still have a question about you. You, what, what it is that you mean when you say with male, with with male writers or, or creators, the the female muse stays with them, whereas with um, the relationship between women writers and male muses, um, the the male kind of becomes stuck in this kind of position of condemnation. Why is that? What, what is that? What do you mean by that? When you say the, the female okay. muse stays with okay. the male? It's just what I've seen in literary work. You, there are now the, de- the whole demon lover is a literary thing that goes back to the 18th century and Coleridge writes about the, woman wailing for her demon lover. So from the start, it was the theme of the demon lover was related to women. Mm-hmm. The poet Coleridge um, and the romantic tradition and the, wrote about the um, woman wailing for her demon lover in the middle of the night. But, yeah, there are... Uh, traditionally, we think of muses as always inspiring, and that's really come from the male artists and liter- and and writer literature. Mm-hmm. And so when I wrote about this, and um, this also was commented on by you know, Joyce McDougall, who did the forward for this book, and, um, and also for Morning Spiritual Eye and Psychic Change, along with Martin Bergman, were particularly um, struck by this thing about the um, woman having a, a male muse turn into a demonic figure in the demon lover complex um so you can have demon lover themes um and you can have 
demon lover complex. Charlotte Bronte had some chauvinistic male in the beginning of Violet, so he had a kind of demon lover theme, but then it was resolved, and the man and woman affected each other as whole objects who could interpenetrate psychically and actually learn to love each other. Very, very different than what happens with Emily Bronte, where the male and female parts of her that have become the devalued feminine side you see in Catherine in uh, Wuthering Heights and the manic, erotic intensity of this overwhelming masculine force of Heathcliff, they kill each other off. The, The Heathcliff's manic, erotic intensity causes Catherine to faint and die, get ill and die, and then he dies to, to go to her. Um, it's like they kill each other off, whereas Charlotte Brenda's characters develop as whole objects and they actually learn to love each other and they actually go through character change in the novel with the woman affecting the man so the demon lover theme turns into a theme of love whereas in the demon lover complex with the compulsion to create and these other women with pre-edipal arrests like Emily Bronte there is um, the male and female killing each other off or the woman being killed off in her poetry by the god-muse male. Emily Dickinson speaks of this male um, god figure as the metallic god who drills his welcome in and all her terror of male sexuality is seen there. And she actually refused the one man who asked her to marry her, who she actually loved, she had was forced to say no to. And she ends up rationalizing it and saying no is the most exciting word in the English language. <laughs> but actually, she, uh, she was, uh, you know, then forced to live in this more and more secluded place um, it's interesting that I also had an article on this Emily Dickinson the subject of seclusion that has been very widely read but in the in the book here you see that how she goes more into seclusion and the poetry reflects it and she gave up her chance to have an, uh, a real relationship with a man in the external world um, so that's when the, the inner muse becomes even more demonic because of the isolation or the failing of external relationships with men in the more borderline characters or the actual failure of any relationships with um, men and receding into the internal world in the Emily Bronte or Emily Dickinson. Um, now, I'm not sure I fully answered your question about men because my focus hadn't been on male creativity. I just know that the traditional theme with male muse is that they the muse continues to inspire them. They don't have to submit to the woman. Right. Whereas in Emily Bronte, she actually, as the female voice and yearning saying, and she says, um, visions of... Um, uh, kill me with desire, the visions of the muse coming towards her, kill her with desire. She's waiting to merge with this mammoth male, masculinized and eroticized godlike force. And then when as he approaches her, she is forced to submit. She talks about being imprisoned, then betrayed, and then you get to that, you know, the image of the end of a poem of the the uh, um, the burial ground with the tombstone. So the female is killed by her submission to this 
omnipotent male force. Yeah, there's something of the power dynamics that I guess is more um, clearly elaborated in this case. Um, in, in the case of the, the women writers with the, with the male muses. Um, I want to just point to, being that you're, you're mentioning this example of Emily Bronte, I just want to point to um, a, a few lines of text that I just thought were so poetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you write, to picture Emily Bronte is to picture a being turned inward, away from the world. She can be seen clinging to her internal objects of suffering, fixed in rigid pose, mourning never comes, although the writer is frozen in the pose of mourner, and her poetry has frequent funeral episodes. Yes. Yes, yes, frozen in time, frozen in pathological mourning, needing to mourn, not being able to mourn. Um, Ida Sitwell, who's the more narcissistic psychic structure, also character disorder, she reached the word mourning in one of her poems and stopped writing poetry for 10 years wow. because she couldn't do the mourning. And she wrote some rather bad biographies at that point, but she didn't do any poetry, which was the essence of the way she she expressed herself in the world for 10 years. And then when she did go back to poetry, she had to do it by being in a manic defense where she was the more narcissistic, so she went into the manic defense rather than the schizoid defense that Emily Bronte and Emily Dickinson went into, mm-hmm. or the borderline suicidal stuff of the borderline poets and writers. Um, so she she went into a manic defense where she became known as a um, wartime prophet, poet in Britain, and she was the one above the victim-villain drama of the devalued feminine and the overly aggressive masculine. They were part objects, and again, they were in conflict killing each other off, and she was above it saying wise things at the prophet in the manic stance, but she could not go from within and and express her inner self. She had to be in her head above the, the um, part object characters that had the victim-villain dramas of the lover complex. Because she couldn't mourn, she couldn't own her insides, tolerate the affect states, and and subjectively grow in her work. So, and in and in Emily Dickinson, I might just read a passage of a poem that shows that pathological mourning state where she is in a whole scene of mourning where she can't mourn. Mm-hmm. So it's explicit this pathological mourning state in object relations terms of just being stuck there. Um, she writes, and this is 245 in the new version of um, The Compulsion to Create. I felt a funeral in my brain and mourners to and fro kept treading, treading till it seemed that sense was breaking through. And when they all were seated, a service like a drum kept beating, beating, till I thought my mind was going numb. And then I heard them lift a box and creak across my soul with those same boots of lead again. Then space began to toll as all the heavens were a bell and being but an ear and I in silence, some strange race, wrecked solitary here. And then a plank in reason broke and I dropped down and down and hit a world at every plunge and finished knowing then. In other words, she was losing her mind, and she actually had a psychotic episode trying to use the poetry to describe it afterwards. 
and another poem it was not death for I stood up and all the dead lie down it was not it was a living death and it was a pathological mourning state and again she writes another poem I felt a cleaving in my mind which goes to that primal split of the idealized and demonic primal object that you have in pre-edipal arrest where you have primal pathological split that continues and creates that character disorder experience in life yeah yeah i think it it seems to make a lot of sense that this would be that this kind of um relationship to mourning whether in arrested form or um or um actually engaging in the mourning process would be represented in the language um yes at the level of the symbolic that seems to make a lot of sense and i think just as just as you observe that happening in the language itself, in the words that are used, in the symbols that are used, you also kind of are very uniquely attentive um, to the way that that's represented in kind of the narrative development and in the relationships between characters. I feel like that's most obvious in um, the case of Charlotte Bronte. Um, I just want to point to a way that you described Follette um, you uh you write a chapter on villette which is her last novel right you write villette truly is more wonderful a book than jane eyre with the sustained power and profundity lacking in the earlier novel villette possesses a reflective quality that makes it a more internally powerful work than jane eyre the excitement of which derives largely from its boldly dramatic plot in contrast villette seems to emerge out of vivid visceral consciousness of its author The writing conveys, and I love this line, an almost somatic sense of repression. Periodic eruptions of suppressed affect punctuate the novel's neurotically hesitant movement. That description seems to be kind of operating on the same level of of, uh, the passage that you just kind of pointed out um, uh, from... Uh, Emily Dickinson, except it represents the opposite. What 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 does the language look like when mourning is happening? Exactly, and I want to read one paragraph from Charlotte Bronte and Villette where she puts it in her words about the mourning, which she does have the capacity to do. Both the process and the content of the of creativity is affected by development and developmental level and psychic structure in the internal world. And that, I think, is something that has not been seen or acknowledged. And so when my book came out in 93, there were controversial responses to that. Some people wanted to believe it just literature is whatever, some free imagination, and has nothing that has, um, that would um, be defining it or limiting it or, or shaping it, like mm-hmm. shaping it more than limiting it. But, um, so both the content and the process are affected by developmental level, but then, of course, within that is the brilliance and originality and imagination of the person. Right. And all these women were brilliant women artists. Um, so I, I'll just read a little bit from Charlotte herself in Villette, which was her last book after Jane Eyre. She had four novels. And um, this is her speaking in Villette. As Lucy Snow, her self-reflective character. And I I introduce it by saying, 
despite this premature burial feeling, which she has in another paragraph in its object, where she buries a letter of a man that she has unrequited love with, Graham, in the novel, Lucy Charlotte has felt the keen cut of her loss enough for conscious grief to yield to love. This is me. Despite her self-expression and her indirectly aggressive assault on the man contained within her internal burial ground, her suffering is experienced. Love emerges within the context of mournful suffering. And then this is she, Charlotte. Alas, something came rushing into my eyes, dimming utterly their vision, blotting them, blotting from sight the schoolroom, the garden, the bright winter sun, as I remembered that never more would letters such as he had read come to me. I had seen the last of them. He wrote the letters and then read it to her. That goodly river on whose banks had had sojourned, of whose waves a few reviving drops had trickled to my lips, was bending to another course. It was leaving my little hut and field forlorn and sand dry, pouring its wealth of waters far away. The change was right, just natural. Not a word could be said, but I love my Rhine, my Nile. I had almost worshipped my Ganges and grieved that the grand tide should roll estranged, should vanish like a false mirage. Though stoical, I was not quite a stoic. Drops streamed fast on my hands on my disc. I wept one sultry shower, heavy and brief. So there's the conscious despair, and Lucy creates meaning in her life, I say then, even in the absence of bonding and support from her environment, because the guy has left her, Mm -hmm. and she's bereft, but she has enough inside to mourn and find meaning in who he was to her. That's a big part of what mourning is, actually finding the meaning of what the relationship was with that person and who that person was to you. So she does all that cognitive work along with the affect emotional work and showing her integrated psychic psychological status in that way right so with these with these other uh, women writers who um, represent the compulsion to create um, which you understand is emerging out of um, a a, a pre-edible level of developmental arrest if you're considering that the it's in Language, or it's at the level of the symbolic that we're working out um, our unconscious conflicts and our object relations, then there's necessarily going to be a relationship between um, the creative process and the therapeutic process in that both intervene on the same level. Would you, is that, um, yes, is that an accurate summation of one of your um, main points in, or one of the things that you came to discover throughout um, researching the compulsion to create? Are you saying there's an analogy between the therapeutic process and creative process at the developmental yeah. level? Yes. Yes. Yes, it just naturally would happen that the woman would be writing from that place. And um, and then the um, in therapy, of course, one goes to whatever point where the person is located internally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in the whole other realm of, of creativity and therapeutic work when the person is blocked rather than being in the compulsion to create with developmental arrest. Um, There are neurotic level people who do reach that edible stage 
who have blocking because they have neurotic defenses of repression. The, the person with the compulsion to create has what Mellie Klein calls the defenses of the paranoid schizoid position, mm-hmm. primal splitting, projective identification, things projected out and and uh, enacted externally and, and or enacted internally, but outside of the subjective self. And then there's this primal split and further dissociative splitting. Uh, those are the kind of defensive process, whereas in someone in a neurotic level, they can become blocked in their creativity and suffer a great deal and need treatment to help them with it, but they're actually suffering from repression with repressed memories, repressed early um, trauma, but mm-hmm. still having gotten to a symbolic level and a level where containing repression can have can allow them to participate and lie on the couch and be in a psychoanalytic process. And I have someone who comes four times a week for specifically for work with a writing block because she this is what she wanted to do more than anything in her life beyond her the career she developed, beyond relationship she developed, beyond her everything she has in the world. She she wants so much to write mm-hmm. creative fiction. And uh, so she's suffering when the blocking now, she's opened up and done some beautiful stories, but the block comes back. So we work through many, many levels of it. Um, but there we're dealing with repression and memories and early loss that comes up and all the aggression and rage from early childhood to open up someone who's a block so they can create. And that's in a neurotic level, whereas the compulsion to create is the pathology with character disorders at the pre edible level of where they're arrested and have this primal split because they didn't have enough from the mother to integrate all the parts of themselves and to integrate the image of the, at a symbolic image level, the mother. Uh, Yeah. So, and do you believe that um, a therapeutic intervention would be able to help those particular individuals, not just in their creative process, but as in their self-development? Absolutely. They go together. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, one doesn't have to be a creative artist to, <laughs> to get treatment for this. The compulsion to create is also what any character disorder would have in compulsion, compulsive reenactment in their life or whatever work they do, you know, in their relationships and in their work of this primal trauma and going from seeing the others idealized to see, then feel, then seeing them as demonic or devalued or the, and themselves also going from being aggrandized to being you know totally worthless and and feeling like uh, fears of abandonment and annihilation all the time yeah I think that that's a, a wonderful place to stop I think this um, the particular example that you gave of your uh, of your clinical experience um, just so beautifully drives home you know just your main your main interest in researching this, um, reaching, researching the subject, which is to see a meaningful um, and productive relationship between therapeutic work um, and the creative process. And I have to say, as um, somebody who's currently in an MFA program for creative writing, if you're a listener who um, is analytically minded but has um, a personal relationship with any of the writer, the women writers who are represented in this book, I can promise you that. 
reading this will uh, just deepen that relationship and, and impact you really strongly. So I encourage everybody to read it. I just want to mention that I do, I always have had writing groups in my practice and mm-hmm. currently have a group, but I also work individually with people, both with blocks and compulsions around creativity as well as in all you know all other ways that uh, people suffer in, in life. That's great. And will, will listeners be able to um, see that information on your website if we link to it? Yes, it's www.cavaleradler.com, K-A-V-A-L-E-R-A-D-L-E-R.com. Um, just my, my name without the hyphen, K-A-V-A-L-E-R-A-D-L-E-R.com. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Susan, it's been wonderful speaking with you again, um, and I thank you so much for, for coming on to the New Books Network. Thank you. It was a pleasure, and I really enjoy articulating these ideas for, for people to benefit from. Thank you so much. Thank you.